this is Your Accidental Tonsia, a new podcast from Theology That Sings. My name is Dr. Nathan Paler, but you can just call me Nathan. Theology That Sings is a group, uh, a sort of initiative, if you will, based in Chester. For the last few years, we've sought to provide free theological Christ-centered teaching to churches here in Chester. But due to the pandemic, for the last year or more, we've been fairly dormant. You know, it is difficult to have those sorts of theological conversations, to deliver that sort of training on Zoom digitally at a distance. But I have been itching to do something new. And I thought to myself, well, perhaps... Oh, there's a plane going on over here, don't mind me. I have thought to myself, well, Nathan, you're opinionated, you can talk, you like to talk. Why don't you do a podcast? The thing is, there are a billion podcasts out there and a million Christian podcasts out there. And so the pressure's on, really, in your mind, thinking, what could you possibly talk about? What could you possibly look at? Uh, Well, to take some of the pressure off, how about this? How about we just take a brief, leisurely stroll through the subject of prayer and specifically the Lord's Prayer? There's no reason for this. I've not got any grand agenda or plan to turn it into a 54-part series or anything like that. It simply is what it is without complication. Let us take together a brief leisurely stroll through this amazing subject, looking at introducing ourselves to this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that has so shaped God's people over the centuries. I suppose when it comes to prayer, I've struggled with expectations, you know, what you ought to do, what the right way of praying is, uh, and certainly the weight of of history, how Christians throughout the centuries have talked about prayer. You know, that is something I've definitely struggled with, and, and that struggle has manifested itself in reality. It may be because uh, being an academic, being the more intellectual sort, I've sort of struggled with that. The, the personal aspect to pray, you know, it's something that you have to actually do in real terms rather than just think about. So maybe that's why. But I'll give you a few examples. I remember when I was a teenager uh, sitting in the dark in my bedroom, you know, I literally did this. It's embarrassing to even mention, let alone confess in public. But, you know, I remember sitting in the dark in the bedroom shortly after I'd sort of gained a new interest, a renewed interest in matters of faith, sitting in the dark in my bedroom Um, uh, with some Gregorian chant on, because that's what I thought you needed to do in order to pray. You know, waiting for God to just to speak miraculously, uh, supernaturally, uh, waiting for me to hear, I suppose, God's voice literally. You know, there was, again, a certain degree of foolishness there. Very mystical, really. Um, I remember as a student arranging with various uh, friends to get up at an ungodly hour, because, you know, that's what godly men do. Uh, But then... All of us, to a man, uh, pressing the snooze button several times and sleeping in. So, you know, you had the form of the thing, the form of godliness, but not understanding the power of it. Uh, And then as a younger man in my 20s, certainly when I uh, became, uh, you know, got some work or didn't do my master's or do my PhD, thinking to myself, Nathan, I've really got to get on with this task. And I'm paying lip service to prayer, but delaying it, thinking I'll do this first. I'll do this task first and then I'll pray. Again, paying lip service to prayer more as a matter of sound doctrine rather than it being something in the heart that I actually wanted to do. My charismatic tradition had taught me that there ought to be intimacy in prayer. That it was a relationship thing. My knowledge of Puritanism and my debt to the Puritans had taught me that there ought to be sobriety in prayer, that it ought to be a sober thing that one ought to, to undertake. 
my revivalist tendencies taught me that, you know, this is something that needed to be done regularly in order to see uh, God move in, in, in a community, in a nation. And again, my history of church history, just my history of church history, my knowledge of church history had taught me that all of this was of paramount importance. It's not that any of this is false. It's just that I, as a younger person, as a younger Christian, carried all of this around with me like baggy hand-me-down clothes from an older sibling. They didn't really fit me very well because my heart wasn't in it. My heart wasn't there. And so it became this very religious thing, if you catch my meaning. It made me miserable. The heart wasn't in it. Now, I'm not going to pretend like I'm a dramatically changed man. I've suddenly become this prayer warrior who always gets it right. Far from it. I still struggle with prayer and I'm still very occasionally convicted by my own prayerlessness. But I can say I have experienced a change and I can track that change to a handful of years ago when I read the Lord's Prayer afresh and it changed something in me. This is from Matthew 6 verse 5 and whenever you pray Jesus said do not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others truly I tell you they have received their reward but whenever you pray go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you when you're praying do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard because of their many words do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. And some of the manuscripts there have what we often pray in church. For thine is the glory, the power and the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Now this is one of the, if not perhaps the most important prayer in all of the Christian faith. It has punctuated all of church history. It has punctuated life for everyday believers for centuries. Tertullian, a second century church father called the Lord's Prayer the Gospel Abbreviated. The Gospel Abbreviated. Isn't that good? It's a great description of the substance and the power of this prayer. I don't know if you just heard that. That was my dog Mabel uh, complaining because she's asleep on the corridor landing and I'm talking. Well, anyway, um, we're going to have to continue, but do forgive any other uh, canine interruptions. Anyway, the Gospel Abbreviated. Isn't that great? It's a great description. And reading the Lord's Prayer again those few years ago, the Lord's Prayer seemed to me like a breath of fresh air. And two things struck me about the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels, specifically one thing from Matthew's report of it and another thing from Luke's report of it. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verse 1, the disciples ask Jesus, they say, Lord, teach us how to pray, teach us how to pray. And in Matthew's Gospel, uh, verse 9, they Jesus says, Pray then in this way. And those are the two things that struck me, right? The disciples saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus responding, pray then in this way. Let's just start with that first one from Luke's gospel. 
that prayer for prayer. You know, the disciples pray. They they beseech Jesus to give them a way to pray. Teach us how to pray. It's interesting that prayer arrives unannounced in the scriptures. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean that there is no explanation or treatise. You'd think if you were going to be telling salvation history and prayer was going to be a regular feature, not just of uh, Christian prayer or Jewish prayer, but of human experience. You know, it's something that all human beings do. It is common to all tribes and tongues. And you'd think then that prayer would come with an explanation in the scriptures. It doesn't. It comes unannounced. It, it arrives uh, without explanation. It is assumed in the scriptures that prayer is a fundamentally human activity. It is assumed that it is something men do as a matter of course. One is reminded there, of course, of uh, in Ecclesiastes, where it says that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. It, this is something Calvin, the 16th century reformer, talks about the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine that is common to all human beings. And indeed, that is what we see across cultures and across the centuries. We pray. Human beings are praying creatures. The first time prayer is recorded in scripture, that is to say, the first time there is an exchange of conversation between God and man. Where is that? Do you know? It's in Genesis 3. It comes after the fall. In chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 9, the Lord calls out to man. He asks, where are you? And in response, man says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. There is the exchange between God and man. And of course, this the fact that it comes after the fall, I think that corresponds to something we know already. That in at least one sense, prayer is interstitial. That's a fancy word, isn't it? What do I mean by that? Interstitial simply means that it occurs between the spaces. You know, that it is... We, we When we pray, it is not the same thing as, say, Adam experiencing seeing God face to face or indeed what we hope to be where we are looking towards that moment when God makes all things new and we see him face to face again and we know him, we worship him perfectly. Prayer is something we do in between those spaces, in between Eden and the new Jerusalem. It is interstitial. Prayer after the fall and before the return of Christ, is by its very nature an act of faith. It is the act of talking to God, even though we can't see him, and believing, trusting that he hears us. But it's precisely because prayer is interstitial, because it's done in between those spaces of Eden and the New Jerusalem, there's a need to ask God to teach us how to pray. There is an implicit suggestion there, is there not? That prayer is difficult, that it's not always easy, that it's not always a walk in the park. I think we all know this in ourselves. I think we have all had that experience. And if you haven't, good on you. But I know I have. Sometimes it comes, uh, it flows very, very smoothly. But at other times, you're tired, you've had a rubbish morning, you've had some bad news, whatever the case might be. And you say to God, Lord, I'm really struggling this morning. And so you can sympathise then with the disciples. Lord, teach me how to pray. Help me. I'm trying, but it's hard this morning, this evening. 
Paul in Romans 12 verse 12 talks about persevering in prayer. In Romans 15, a few chapters later, he says, labour, strive with me in your prayers. To the Colossians in chapter 4 verse 2, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. Goodness knows, don't we know what that feels like, especially when you're tired, to keep alert in your prayers. Even Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5 verse 7, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Again, this is God in his kindness, having inspired the scriptures, saying to us, look, I know it's not easy. And this brings us back to the Lord's Prayer. Here we have the disciples in between Eden and the New Jerusalem, but seeing God face to face. You know, they are beholding his glory, the glory of an only son. They are looking on him who will tear down the curtain and in his own flesh bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. And they ask him for help. Lord, teach us how to pray. Which then leads us to what we read in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus says, Pray then in this way. This is not just Jesus giving an instruction, giving us a form as to how to pray, although there is that. This is God himself in Christ telling us to pray. Now, it's very easy when we hear that sort of thing to turn it instinctively into a very religious, heavy, grave affair. We have been commanded to pray, therefore we ought to pray. And it is very easy to turn it into an ought. But I would suggest to you that the Lord's Prayer is representative of God's desire to hear us. His desire to have us come close to him, to speak to him, to hear his words and then for him to hear us speak back to him and we discover a sense of that in the song of songs chapter two now there is a whole history of reading the song of songs in a christian way obviously it has its original context in solomon and his bride but christians have long identified in it a picture of christ and the church of the bridegroom and his bride in whom he takes delight. So this is chapter 2, verses 8 and following. Verse 8. The voice of my beloved, this is the bride speaking, the voice of my beloved, look, he comes leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. Verse 13. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the covert of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Here we have the bridegroom speaking over his bride, let me see your face, come away with me, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. Matthew Henry, the 17th century uh, Christian preacher and writer, writer, of course, of the Matthew Henry Bible commentary, which many still use today. In commenting on this verse, he says that our praying is music in God's ears. He is assured, as Matthew Henry says, that the prayer of the upright is his delight. This is important for us to understand. Again, not just that Prayer is something that we ought to do, but that God gives us prayer as a grace 
and he delights in hearing us. If you think about it, it could have been that God didn't create anything, but he did create everything. Okay, fine. It could be that God created everything, but then, like the deists believe, you know, that he's like a watchmaker. He simply designs the world and then lets it run and just basically has nothing more to do with it. But that's not true. The scriptures promise that he sustains all things by his powerful word. Okay, so it could be that God has created all things, sustains all things, but that he gives his creatures no way to contact him. But that's not true. God has created all things, he sustains all things, and he says, pray. Okay, fine. But it could still be that God tells us to pray, but that he promises not to hear us, that he doesn't promise to listen. And yet that is exactly what the word says. The word says that the creator of all the universe takes delight in listening to you. He takes delight in hearing from you. He says, give me no rest for your voice is like music in my ears. Of course, this is just the beginning. That is literally just the beginning of how Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer. He gives us this injunction, but then he proceeds to give us the substance of the Lord's Prayer as we know it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So he doesn't just promise to listen. He doesn't just delight in hearing but then he uses our speaking to bring things into being. There is such profundity here. There is so much to the Lord's Prayer that I can't exhaust it, certainly not in a 20-minute podcast. There is a reason why, for example, Martin Luther in his Simple Way to Pray, which is a treatise he wrote because his barber asked him how to pray and he used the Lord's Prayer and expounded it in order to help his barber to pray. Anyway, there's a reason why Martin Luther in that treatise said, to this day, I suckle at the Lord's Prayer like a child, and as an old man, eat and drink from it and never get my fill. It is the very best prayer, even better than the Psalter, which is still very dear to me. It is surely evident that a real master composed and taught it. Well, amen to that, Martin. And amen to the whole. I hope that this episode has been helpful for you in some way. Again, very brief, very brisk walk, nothing grand, but hopefully it's an encouragement to you to hear not just that he promises to listen to you, not just that he commands you to speak to him, but that he delights in the hearing. Your voice is music in his ears. That is a reason for rejoicing. And that is the end of this first episode of Your Accidental Tonsia with me, Dr. Nathan Paler, but you can just call me Nathan. I'll see you next time. God bless. Thank you.